Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coalesce on Common Ground. Today, I am interviewing Matt Jacobs, and we are talking about how he champions worker rights, especially in regards to um, how workers are treated on construction jobs. And this podcast is really illuminating and creates a lot of awareness about what it looks like for exploited workers on construction job sites. I had met Matt and he started telling me the depths of his experience and a very personal experience that he had with a couple of exploited workers with English as their second language when they were trying to recoup over $30,000 of unpaid wages each. And I found it very fascinating. So I asked Matt to come on and share his expertise and what he's seeing because he is such a voice and an advocate for how we change what is currently happening to these exploited workers on the job site. And the way Matt puts it, he's like, it's not a job site or a construction issue. It's really a humanitarian issue, the way people are being treated and how we look to solve it. And if you stay on at like around minute 45 or so, Matt talks about his philosophy on how he's trying to educate um, people like city officials, county officials on what it looks like to help solve this problem. And he has a really open and fascinating approach to giving people the benefit of the doubt that maybe they just don't know how this is going on, the depths of the way it's going on. And he has a very open-minded way of bringing people on this journey with him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Matt Jacobs as he takes us through how he has championed workers' rights on the construction job sites. Enjoy, everyone. What I found interesting is I wanted to ask you, like, we know each other. And I, what I found fascinating is getting to know you. You shared your passion with me about working and helping exploited workers. And you, I knew it was going on, but not to the extent that you could inform me about it. And you told me this story that I thought was just completely amazing. So I want to start with how did you become so passionate about this topic? Where did it drop in for you where you're like, this is something that I would like to really research, know a lot about, help educate the public and the people you're working with. I want to give the audience a feeling of like, where did it start for you? Because I find those stories so fascinating. So Matt, where did it start for you? Uh, that's actually very easy. There was a couple of days that really changed I've always knew this was going on and that there was something we needed to fix. But I think there's a difference between it being a problem and it becoming personal for you. And for me, it started when I was working with Mario from Voces. We had just went to introduce ourselves and to see if we could be a resource to him. He introduced us to two workers that had been exploited. It was actually up towards my area. It was in Outagamie County. They had a court case coming up. And I get a random phone call a few days after I met with Mario. He just asked, he said, is there any chance you would be able to help these individuals? They are coming up for their court case. They don't speak great English and they're very uncomfortable. They had an attorney that was representing them pro bono, but he was unable to make the court date. They didn't want that to slow down the process at all. So they said, they're just going to have the workers show up. They're going to... Uh, work to get the case dismissed because when the workers originally filed the case, they filed it in small claims and they needed to get it to the regular court just so that they could go after the correct amount of money that they were owed. 
So my mission that day was to meet with the workers, make sure they're comfortable. If they have any questions, help talk them through it. I am not bilingual. So I reached out to a good friend and coworker of mine, Raul Hernandez, and he met me there that day and helped with the translation portion of it. Okay, Matt, I've got to stop you. So everyone knows, like, you're not a lawyer. (laughs) Go back and (laughs) tell them like, oh, because this story is phenomenal, but you have to give the audience a perspective of what was the role? Who are you in the world? Let's go back there and start with what's your role? Because you're not a lawyer. This isn't typical for you to be taking people that English is their second language through the court system to get refiled in a different way. So will you start there? Who are you first? Hi. So my name is Matt Jacobs. I'm a business rep with the Carpenters. I get asked a lot, what is your typical day like? That day, those days are always atypical. Um, We do many different roles. We try to help workers. We enforce contracts. We can help workers with grievances. And one of my passions is helping workers, especially workers that are being exploited. Okay. Second question for you. Who's Mario that you were working with that brought this issue to you? Mario is a worker advocate for Volsas de la Frontera. He was out of the Milwaukee office, and I just looked up. I was searching worker advocacy groups in the area, came across his name. I reached him via phone call and said, I'd love to meet with you. Set up that time myself and Raul went to meet with him, and that was what started our relationship with uh, Mario. And uh, then, like I said, a few days later, he had reached out with a phone call to help support some of these workers. Okay, hold on. I don't know this part of the story. What caused you to reach out to Mario that deals with workers' advocacy, Matt? Frustration. Being so frustrated with hitting dead ends. Too many times on the job on a job site, I would get to the exact same point. I would identify that there is crime going on, and by crime, I mean there are people that are ripping off workers. They're promising. X amount of dollars per hour or per day, whatever that may be, and they're not paying them. I would get the workers to tell me that there was an issue. We would try to get some sort of enforcement and the job would be over and they would move on to the next job or I wouldn't see them again. It's a very transient group that we're working with. They're typically moving around fast and they're very intimidated. So getting these get getting to that point and it always falling apart on me and never getting that final we got a conviction or we got somebody paid or whatever the end result may be it always ended the same and it wasn't what i had wanted okay so interesting so you have all these breadcrumbs of knowing exploitation of workers is going but you're not able to get the justice that you feel you would like to which i've got this running through my blood as well so then you reached out to mario with the workers advocacy and this brought us to current day and the story where we're at exactly i had to try something different i was frustrated with doing the same thing and getting the same result and that started with just a simple Google search to work or advocacy to meetings to what are other people doing or who else can help with this. Okay, fascinating. So tell me the story then. Here, Mario has told you about these exploited workers that are going to court and they would like to get it dismissed. Bring this back up now that we set the stage a little bit more for people can understand where you're at. 
Excellent. So in an effort to do it differently, to help exploited workers, hopefully help these individuals find some justice for what had occurred, I agreed to just accompany them to court. And when I say accompany, obviously I'm not a lawyer, so I'm uncomfortable just doing this. But if I'm uncomfortable and I'm there, I can't imagine what somebody who doesn't speak the language very well, isn't the area, doesn't know what's going on, what they're going through. I'm not going to be able to help them legally, but I think I can at least help them be comfortable or make sense of what's going on in the process. And again, I have Raul with me, so I'm not in this by myself. We have, he's bilingual. That's the reason I we reached out to Raul because he helps with the translation portion of it, especially with some language being, one, one of the individuals did speak some broken English, but Spanish was definitely the primary language for the two. So we get to court and I'm supposed to meet two individuals that I've never seen before and three walking down the hall who look very confused. So I get an idea this might be our group, but they recognized our shield. So we had the emblem from the carpenters on our jackets, two of us. So they came up and introduced themselves to us and began talking. We just talked them through that we're here. They have questions. Let us know, but we're in the waiting room. We got an appointment at one o'clock and we are just going to wait until it's our time. About 10 to 1, somebody opens up the door and says, you better not be my 1 o'clock. And now I'm starting to panic. My first day as a pretend lawyer is not going well at all, obviously. <laughs> and uh, it was the judge. And she had explained to these members earlier or that, they, that this was supposed to be call-in only. And it wouldn't be a big deal except her court case or her courtroom couldn't handle one group calling in and the other group being in person. So she just says, wait here and takes off. And now we have, again, three people who are very confused. We're also confused. We don't know what to tell them. We're explaining to them what the judge said, but we they're asking questions and we don't have any answers. We're like, we've just got to wait. So she comes back like, all right, follow me. She brings us to a different courtroom that has the audio and video and is able to accommodate party calling in and us being in person as well as a translator that the court had appointed so we get ready to start the court case and the other party the defendant does not call in so there was a bit of a delay originally now we got it up to speed and so she makes a announcement that these individuals you know, i'll award you this court case and the individual raises his hand and he says, can I speak to my friends? Over? And the judge is like, I'll be honest. I'm sure she was a little bit uncomfortable just going, you just won the court case. Why would you want to talk to somebody? Who are they? And he's like, my friend. And so she's like, okay. And she lets him go talk to us. And he comes over and he's like, we were supposed to just get it dismissed, but we automatically win. If this guy doesn't show up, shouldn't we take this? And I'm, again, not a lawyer, very uncomfortable, and I, I don't know myself. Do you just take the win because you got the win? We were instructed to just get it dismissed without prejudice so they could move it to the other court, but is a win in the smaller court better than another chance in the higher courts? And so we're, I just raised my hand very sheepishly, and I'm like, excuse me, Your Honor? And she's like, yes. I'm like, can I ask a question? She has me approach the bench, and again, not a lawyer, but starting to feel like once I get to go talk to the judge. She was actually, and I shouldn't say actually, because that makes it sound like I wasn't expecting that, but she was extremely helpful when I explained who I was, what we were doing, what had happened to these workers, 
And she even very she's like, just so the workers understand, just make sure they know that just because they won, like they're not leaving here with a check or anything. If this guy's not collectible, they're still not going to get that money. There's a whole lot more to this. I go back and Raul explains to them what the, the judge had said. It got more confusing because one wanted to accept it and one didn't. So I'd ask the judge again, can one person accept this victory? Can the other person not? How does this work? In the end, they both decided to just go with the original plan was just get it dismissed without prejudice, which the judge would easily agree to because the other party wasn't there and that they could move it to the correct court. We did, we went through, we were done or so we thought for the day and we were ready to leave the courthouse when just the very minute conversation of, hey, are you guys hungry? Would you like to go for lunch? To which they said, yes, we're starving. In fact, we drove through the night last night to get here. We took turns. That's the reason we have a third person, even though there's only two of us in the court case, was the third person helped us rotate so one guy could stay awake, one guy could drive, and one guy could sleep mm -hmm. in back. So when we got to lunch was when this day really got interesting. Hold on. Uh, I got to back you up. Hold on, Matt. I got to back you up. How much money are we talking about that they weren't paid? So the original amount was 13000 and each individual was owed around 13000 was the original amount that they were going after. I believe the maximum in that court was only like 9000 in change that could collect. So if they were going to take that win, they were going to take a loss of, and this was about $10,000 in wages that they were owed. When I said the lunch got much more interesting is when they started telling us about the conditions they were working under and what they were forced to do. And that number of 13,000 that they claimed they were owed was just flat money that they were not paid. When we started calculating in even, and I use the word small things lightly here, but they obviously did not get paid over time. They did not get paid a lot of the things that they were agreed to with some of the travel and some other substance. But then we found out through talking to them that there was money, like there was work that came in. So originally they were doing the siding on a building and the siding, the original, the first load came in stained, painted, and so they could just install the siding. The second batch didn't come in that way. And the contractor just said to them, well, that's not our problem. That's yours. You've got to stain it now, fill it, and then put it on the building. We're like, they didn't agree to any of those hours, and now they're just getting more work forced upon them in order to continue and complete what they had for contractual work. So when we started factoring this in, we're like, your number that you're owed is much higher. They can't force you to do that work. And then that opened up more conversation. They're like, they also made up this town to pick up these deliveries in our vehicles. So they were using their own personal vehicles to pick up stain, to pick up paint, to pick up materials. They were So there was so much stuff that got added to this. By the end, they were each owed over a thousand or over three thirty thousand dollars because there was so much more work that was added to it and just work that was forced upon them outside the original agreed upon scope. Oh wow. And where did these guys where did they come from when they were driving to do this work? So they were after the job that so the job that they were in out Gamey County for or in the court system for was in obviously just south of green bay they were coming from west virginia because the next job they went to happened to be in west virginia and wow so west virginia to wisconsin overnight and then back because they were still going back to work the next day but 
the part that's hard for everybody to follow is that transient workforce. These guys weren't chasing a dream. These guys were just chasing work. The company that they had worked for in West Virginia said, hey, we know there's another opportunity up in Wisconsin. When this job, when the first job finished up, they didn't have any work to go to. So they drove up to Wisconsin just simply for work. Then when they had this bad experience up here, obviously they went back to what they were comfortable with and went back to West Virginia to find more work. But that's that transient workforce that we try to one of the things people might not fully appreciate or understand, these guys at least had vehicles. They had transportation and that they could drive back and forth. In a lot of the cases that I see, the workers don't have transportation. They are driven from the job site to the apartment or hotel that they're staying at. Their food allowance or any substance allowance comes from the contractor. They're in a country that they may not speak the native language or may have uh, issues trying to speak to anyone. And in some cases, they border on human trafficking just for the fact that they have no resources. The only resource they have available to them is what the problem is, is the person lying or cheating them. And on top of all of that, they'll still threaten the worker with exploit or deportation or with many other bad things if they say anything about it. So they're really just in a circle of the only source I have for income is also the pain in my life. And that's a difficult mm. spot to be in. Okay, because these are mostly probably immigrants or illegal immigrants trying to find work for their families to feed their families, feed themselves, feed their families. And then they're seeing like, this is my only opportunity. And it also happens to be the worst case scenario where they're just completely going to take advantage of. That is exactly it to a T. And so the one source that they're finding for income is also pushing back on them or creating pain. And it's such a hard area to be in because which way is out so it's like a abusive relationship but instead of seeing it between a man and a woman or man woman like whatever it is in a relationship it's through the workforce interesting that is a very interesting way i've never looked at it that way but i think that is very spot on that is exactly what these workers are going through okay so let me ask you you keep calling it the transient work for us. So there's just a whole bunch of these immigrants, these transients that are just moving state to state, time to time, like wherever they could possibly get a job. And somebody's picking, like they're just hearing rumors or something. Because the people that hired them in West Virginia, were they the same people that were hiring them in Wisconsin? Or is it just, like we heard a rumor that there was work in Wisconsin? Do you have any idea how that works? It's very close to the last piece that you had said. The people that they were working for in West Virginia said, we believe this person, they gave him a contact number of somebody up in Wisconsin to talk to this guy. We believe he has a project going on here. You could work for him and do this work. So there was a contact, but it is an underground workforce because typically these workers will only be paid cash. They'll be paid off the books. Most of the time, the immigration status, I don't, typically ask what that status is, but you can usually tell by the way they answer or the fear of reaching out to authorities that immigration may be an issue for them. Yeah. And it's interesting that the individuals you met, they filed a court case to try to get their wages back. And again, this is such a frustrating situation for them when they're owed this money, they're, they're, back up just a little bit. One of the things to set the table on what these workers go through would be 
it's a different lifestyle. Many of them work six to seven days a week, long hours each day, hoping they get paid. I think most workers, even when you're at work, you might not always be thinking about work, but you might be thinking about your kid's baseball game after work or what you're going to have for supper after work or even your weekend plans. The mindset of this worker is literally survival. And I think if there's one point we can really drive across is that we have a tendency to just think of situations from our own perspective. But if you put yourself in this exploited worker's position in his mindset and understand that it's such a bleak outlook, like they are literally just looking to survive. They want to get through the day. They want to, they're, they're sometimes in dangerous positions at work. They need to be safe. That what happens to them if, if they get injured on this job, there's not workman's comp, there's not, uh, you know, hospitals and a family support system if they would need to miss work. It is when I say they're chasing work, they're chasing survival and they're chasing work just to survive. And that's to get paid. Then in the situation, like we just discussed, where they didn't get paid, they have to go through and figure out a court system that's extremely frustrating for professionals, much less somebody from the outside trying to figure out how do I get this money that I'm owed anyway. And sometimes just getting so frustrated and overwhelmed by it that they just give up on it. And they're like, I can't do this, sir. They're just, I'll just make something else or I'm sick of trying with this court case because it's taking too long. Yeah. And I want to illuminate like court cases for everyone to make sure everyone understands talking about this. Like just when somebody goes and files, then they have to wait to take it in front of the judge, essentially what these did. But even if you win, you then have to put in modalities to chase the money. And if there's a transient employer, let's say, that's bringing these people in, like that person's moving state to state, it's likely going to be pretty much impossible for those people to track them down and find them. And I kind of want to talk about that. I'm assuming here for my example, because even if you win a judgment doesn't mean you win the money, which is the hardest part is these people probably are going to win a $30,000 judgment against this employer, but they'll never be able to collect on it. Am I right? Are these employers that are doing this, do they move around too? Or are they state-based? They, what's their little system to pull this off? Besides the fact that it's just, I can't believe this is happening. So you're very spot on with that. These transient companies are, they're as transient as the workforce. They will bound wherever they can be. They create new LLCs. They change names. It'll go from it might be in the husband's name one day. He might move it to his wife's name or to his girlfriend's name. There'll be small LLCs, low cash volume. They'll have high cash flow through them, like when payroll comes. So if there's a drop for money, it comes in, it goes out right away. So suing them is virtually impossible. You can sue them and you can win, but collecting on them is virtually impossible because they'll just shut it down, start a new one and go to a different state. And they're hard to find because they use PO boxes. They don't use real addresses and they don't keep any assets. Do they pay for a while to keep people on and then they just stop paying? What's the system to for to get people to come and work for that? So when we talked in the beginning about the frustration, many times when I meet workers, they'll all tell me the exact same story. This guy that I'm working for right now is great, but the last guy I worked for, I had problems with, which is problematic in many ways. If you want to get collected, you need to either put a lien on a building to get the owner's attention that this needs to be taken care of or be able to catch the guy while they're still in the area. So with the if they're only in your area for a short period of time, A, getting in there, getting them to trust you and give you that information is very difficult. But then when you're battling it up against a company that might not no longer be there, or like you had mentioned, the current company that he's working for, 
is likely going to rip him off in the end, but hasn't yet. So he's still loyal to this person because he's treating him well. He's feeding him and he doesn't have any other option until that happens a second time. Okay. So there's, they start off good, great relationship. It's once again, I'm going to take dating. They're whining and dining. They're taking care of them. And then all of a sudden, the little monster comes out and they're like, whoa, who is this man? It's like polar opposite of the deal we thought we were getting into. Ick. Okay. That is- uh, okay. Okay. So then I have to ask you on the other side, because I'm curious, like how are companies like this that are just this huge shell game getting hired onto jobs? Because some of the jobs, like the way this comes through that we've talked about are these large jobs where there's county or city financing involved. They're large industry or commercial projects. And I'm just like, what? This is going on? Who's the one hiring these people? Let's take a look at the hierarchy of how this goes. If a developer would come and build a multifamily, let's say 200 apartments area, they would have to come in, they would give a development agreement, and they would say, we're going to build these apartments. This is the estimated cost. This will be the rent. Sometimes there's going to be subsidies for lower income. There, There can be many different ways. So the developer is going to look to get money from the city. They're going to want TIF money or HUD money or WIDA money and any sort of assistance to help make their project more feasible. The developer then hires general contractor to do the work. Underneath the general contractor, there'll be many subcontractors. And this is a legit format. The general It goes developer, general contractor, subcontractor. And each trade will have their own subs. So you're going to have electricians, you're going to have plumbers. I'm primarily focusing on carpenters today because that's what I do. But even amongst the carpentry trade, you could have full subs because there could be a sub for drywall. There could be a sub for framing. There could be a sub for your interior package. So there'll be a handful of subs. If those subs are all legit, that's good. That's what the way the system is supposed to happen. What we see happen on some of these projects is general contractors hires a subcontractor. The subcontractor's name that's on the contract is a legit company. But below there is where it starts to get sketchy in what we refer to as labor brokers. Now, a labor broker would be anybody that a subcontractor would call up and say, hey, I need 16 people to come to this job site to frame. This labor broker shows up with 16 people and they frame. That labor broker's name is never on any contracts. The the town or the city or the county wouldn't really know this is going on their project without doing some heavy investigation. Once that happens, you have a general contractor and a subcontractor with legit contracts that looks good, except for where did that money go between the subcontractor and and that labor broker? And that's typically how they pull this off is just through a line of subcontractors. And once that subcontractor gets down to second, third, or fourth tier subcontractors, there's probably something shady going on. Okay. So it's... The shady party, usually the labor broker? Labor brokers are all shady. All labor <laughs> brokers do are professional. They exploit people. That is the sole thing they do on this planet. If you talk to them, they're going to talk about how I'm not as bad as this one. Labor brokers, yeah, they just... they take humans around and they put them to work in their eyes. They're doing them a favor because they're saying, 
look, I got this guy work. You're also exploiting him. You're making money off of him at an unreasonable rate and your work conditions, your living conditions, the things that they're doing just aren't great. If that was truly, if labor broker was even a true position, then all of these workers would be employees of the subcontractor, not paid cash by the labor broker. So the labor broker would take a payment from the subcontractor for the work that is being performed. He takes his cut and then just pays the other guys. And then it's the labor broker that'll typically rip them off in the end. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So like basically a sub is utilizing a labor broker. So the sub doesn't actually directly hire any of these guys that goes through a labor broker. They're just like contracting with the labor broker. Correct. And that's why there's no work comp. There's no health. There's no benefits. There's nothing. These guys are being paid cash. And the subcontractor looks like he basically has no employees, but it does. No one probably looks that deep in the contract. I don't know. Tell me about that. (laughs) That's the most frustrating part right there is you can always find where it happens because there'll be either a subcontractor that's not registered to do work in your state, which shouldn't be there to begin with, but there's not a huge penalty for it. So they'll do it. And there's also so much money to be made on that even when these labor brokers or cheating subcontractors get caught, they just pay the fine and move on because they said it's too profitable not to do it again. Like the fines that they get and the penalty get for it don't match the crime that they're committing. And there's we've talked to them that just said, whatever, I got caught on this one, but I'll do it again for the amount to make off of this. Oh, wow. That makes sense. If this is your the way you make money and the penalty is not very high, you're just going to take the penalty and continue doing it. Oh, gosh, it makes me like sick to my stomach taking advantage of people to this extent. How would, do you think the developers and general contractors know this is going on? It would depend on the job. Uh, Should they? Yes. If the developer is to control the job site and build the building, my opinion, he should definitely know if this is going on. The general contractor, he really, that person really has no excuse not to know. Their job is to control the job site. And so if this is going on, not saying they couldn't, you know, a labor broker could be very sneaky or undercover and possibly get away with it. But I can tell you that there's cases that we've brought it to the developers and the general contractors attention to which they pretty much try to wash their hands of it and say, well, that's not really my issue. We subcontracted it and they're doing it. That's on them. So then it becomes a blame game where... I got to get this project done, so I don't want to bring it up now. But if we could just talk about it later, that would be great. And passing that mm-hmm. off or being passive about it is the experiences I come across. Nobody wants to just come out and say, yeah, we know what's going on, or even as much bury their head in the sand and say, no, it's definitely not going on because they can tell the number of people on the job site. That, is this person an employee of this company, it would be very easy if they really wanted to just take a walk through the job site and be like, do you work for, do you work for him? Who do you work for? And so my belief is it's that blame game. They know what's going on. I think a lot of times if you're not paying a workman's comp, if you're not paying insurance on that worker, if you're not even just paying the basic requirements of the state, you can be beating any other contractor by 20%. That leaves a lot Mm. of profit in if you're just going to pay them cash, especially if you're going to rip them at the end, it's profit on top of profit. So it leads back to it's all about the money. There's too much money to be made in this direction. And then from the top, there, 
well, this company is so much cheaper. We can't make our budget numbers if we don't use this company. To my point, it's like, there's no excuse for human exploitation to make a budget. Like it's infeasible to even think that, but in their eyes, if they close a blind, if they just close their eyes to it and say, we don't know that's going on. We think that they're getting treated fairly. They can make their budget numbers by utilizing that contractor. Okay. Cause it all comes down to, so if they're not paying what's required to pay an employee, all the added extras that any employer has to pay, they are more profitable and then they can cut their bids. So their bids are coming in much lower. So they're the likely one that's always going to get chosen. Right. And then it just goes up the chain. Cause if you even you used an example of 280 apartment complex going up, like how many contractors and subs, how many subs do you think would even be on that job? Give me like a, it doesn't even matter if it's accurate. Give me an estimate so I can visualize this. Matt. So I would guess you'd be in, on an apartment complex like that. You're probably going to be in the area of 20 different subcontractors throughout the whole project. Okay. Okay. That and there might. That'd be on the what side? Say that again. On the legitimate side. Like if you had a legitimate subcontractor, no cheating going through. Now, if you go through and you look at some of these, uh, one of the other tricks that they'll play is a company will just label every single employee as an independent contractor and say, we don't have to pay workman's comp or insurance on any of these employees because they're an independent contractor. Now, the state has very clear expectations as to what you know is an independent contractor and what is an employee. Many companies have played games with this for a while. But if, if that's the case, you'll see 150 subcontractors listed on the Oh, job. wow. So that's, that's a red flag right list. there. Absolutely. Okay. So what, that's one red flag to look for in the beginning. Another question I have is how widespread is this happening? Do you think, do you think it's really happening in quite a few areas or is it just happening in your town? Do you have any knowledge about that, Matt? If there's construction going on, there's a good possibility it's happening. That's how sad it is. I would have never thought it was happening in my town. And then to find out how rampant it was, it's just a matter of being able to see it, understanding what it is. And yeah, it is sad to see the number of you know, in exploited workers is only one thing. There's there's children on these job sites. There's things that you don't think you'll ever see on a job site that you come across on job sites. And it gets worse. The it, commercial job sites aren't typically as bad because they'll have some oversight or some reputation that they're looking to upstand. It's when you get the further out you get, I'll be honest, the area multifamily residential and home building are probably the worst for exploitation because they're smaller, they're more transient, and it's uh, come and go. They're here and they're gone. If it becomes like a hospital, the hospital isn't going to take the chance that happens on their job site. So it's a little bit different that way where there's a little bit more responsibility by the end user, but that's where a lot of that that's where I see a lot of it in my area. And I've worked at our regional council covers six states, and I know it's in every single one of those states. So let me ask you, based on that, how do you think this is solved? So I think the first step is just identifying. So I appreciate just having this conversation. The more people that know about this, the more advocates there are for workers that are being exploited. 
Second would be, it would depend on the job. If it's a residential job, it's significantly different than if it's a commercial job. So in a residential job, you could, they could file a lien against the building and get, get paid that way. But uh, again, you would have to know how to file that and go through that process. If it's on commercial jobs, I think it's really comes down to elected officials. Uh, I don't want to blame the elected officials because I don't think a lot of them know that it's going on. In fact, I've had many who were wondering, how could this be going on in our town or how could this possibly happen? But I think they're ultimately the best case to fix. So an individual who wants to get active and help and figure this out, I would challenge you to look up who your city officials are, who your county officials are, and just have a conversation if they're aware of this. If they're absolutely not aware of it, reach out to myself, reach out to somebody in the community to help bring light to the situation that's going on these job sites. If the if they're not aware of it, but they want to become an advocate, there's some great ways that some of them that are very simple. We spoke earlier, a lot of it comes down to money. If you want to affect them, affect the money. So if they're looking for TIF money or WIDA money or HUD money or any sort of funding, the city has the ability to write that contract and an effective way to keep illegitimate contractors off of your job site or to make it not profitable to utilize these works would do TIF language, just write something as simple as a way for any worker that was unpaid or subcontractor, because as we talked about, they may label as in contractor or subcontractor, even though they are technically employees. If any of them do not get paid on this project, that the city has the ability to take that money back, which seems like such a simple philosophy to begin with is just, look, if you're going to rip people off on this project, we're going to take back some of the money we promised you in order to build this. Um, I'll back up one step. If you're not familiar with the HUD or the TIF, that it's essentially money that a city would give in order to incentivize builders to build in that area or developers to develop. Uh, sometimes it's for blighted properties to get rid of some of the mess, but most of the times it's just used as an incentive to get people in. So that that is the spot that you can get them. If you can take back that money, a bad contractor, or you can tell a lot about your developer or your contractors if they say, hey, we like this track. We're really happy that you're going to give us $8 million. We just want you to take this one piece out here that says that if we rip people off, that you're going to take our money back because we don't want that. That's a pretty big red flag for me. Okay. Uh, so another Yeah. One. Hold on. I want to make sure this is really clear for everyone. Because Matt's breezing through this, and I want to back up because I'm not sure if everyone understands TIF and HUD. So the city council really gets involved because they're the one that gets to allocate these funds. And they get to choose which build developers, general contractors get allocated these funds for their projects. So you're saying, and what I'm hearing, verify if this is correct, is... If more city council members knew that this was going on and how to watch out for it, then this could help be a remedy for fixing the exploitation of workers when they're choosing to give out. Because these TIF financing, I'm guessing they're huge. Like you mentioned $8 million. Like it's quite a substantial amount or HUD coming through, which is just another different financing option that when that comes through, the city council can educate themselves about how this is happening so they can really start to watch for it. But you're saying it's about language in the contract. Like one of the key indicators is if it's saying we can take our money back if everyone's not paid on the job. What did you say? Say that again. What's the language, Matt? Correct. That if any subcontractor or employee is 
not paid for the work performed on this project that the the city council would have the authority to take back any or all of the TIF money provided. Okay. 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 So I'm following this. I'm catching up. I'm catching up. So what else? You're going on somewhere else before I stop to clarify. So that's the biggest one because that would happen before a developer would ever break ground or start on a project. If you can do that one, that's like deterring bad developers from even coming into your into your neighborhood or working in your area because they're not going to want to sign an agreement that has language that basically breaks their business model. Is it usually um, the less, same? Hold on. Is it usually the same developers that you see doing this? Is there a trend here? So I can tell you in my experience that, yes, I can pick out certain helpers that I know have a tendency to use this business model versus other ones that are more likely to play by the rules. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Okay. Because that's what I was like, do the city council members know that? Because you're down on the ground having these conversations, and I highly doubt city council members are talking to the workers on a job to know this. So are you even talking to the city council members? What is it? Give me a little perspective here. Step two is, step two and three, I guess we'll combine them both, is talk to city council, have these conversations with them, explain what can happen to members or to workers or subcontractors in these situations and step two is allow city council to walk the job site and talk to the people ask them who they work for how much they make it looks really suspicious if you're walking through a job site and you ask somebody how much do you make and they say i don't know there's a good chance that worker is being exploited if they can't tell you how much they're getting paid so literally exploited workers don't know how much they're getting paid all the time. I get on job sites all the time where I ask somebody if they're getting paid. They There's a tendency to lie and just say a flat amount. I get paid $100. $100 an hour, $100 a day, $100. There's a tendency to just not know because if it's the first two weeks, they haven't been paid yet and they're not even sure what they're getting paid. Oh, wow. um, there are also, also an uncomfortable conversation. So sometimes they may just be shying away because some stranger walking onto a job site, making sure that they're getting paid what they should be isn't what they're expecting. So they're put off by it. So it could be a handful of things. Yeah. That probably gets back to the fear of like deportation or like, why is this person looking into me? I'm nervous about it. Oh, fascinating. How many, have you ever had a city council member do this? So we've, yes, we've had some city, is it city? Yeah. City council and county walk some projects. We've had some success with getting the TIF language changed so that uh, we can take back some of that money. Those are big helps right off the start. Um, some smaller things that they could do even would be have a daily sign-in sheet. It's really common on most job sites that state who you are, who you work for, and you know typically what time you came in, what time you left. Those will help exploited workers in the end identify that they were on these job sites. Because again, when it comes to undocumented workers, they'll lie a contractor will lie and be like, no, I've never met this guy before. He's never been on my job site. And we have video or we had evidence of him being on that job site. So they're trying to, the more documentation you can put in place, certified payroll is the best one. If you have certified payroll, you almost wash your hands of this because you can see at any point in time, if there's a large check that just goes from one contractor to another contractor and then never gets split up to workers, it's very clear that you need to look into why did $10,000 just move there and didn't go to workers because it went to one individual who broke it into cash and split it up amongst workers. 
Okay. So tell me what certified payroll is then. How is that different than, yeah, what is that? So certified payroll is typically required in like on prevailing wage jobs, which will assign any contractor working on that site has to show proof of their payroll to, and they can assign who that would be. But typically somebody in the county government would get the certified payroll and it would just state that we're paying this person this many dollars for this many hours worked. And it gives proof of who's on the job site and how much they were paid. And that gives the worker some strength if there's ever a point in time where there's a discrepancy about pay, about what they were paid, hours they were worked. If the sign-in sheet doesn't match the certified payroll, there's it, it just adds checks and balances to avoid the workers being exploited. So you see those on these prevailing wage federal jobs, essentially. Those are the federal jobs, but you don't see them locally. Is that what you're alluding to? Or do you see them locally? Not a lot of times. So we do see them occasionally, but... Again, a simple tool. When I say simple, it's simple for the worker because it prevents them from exploiting. The company may complain that certified payroll is additional work for their payroll department. But again, it's checks and balances. It's making sure that everybody's doing what they're saying they're doing. And from a county standpoint, it's not going to add any additional or a city standpoint. It won't add additional cost to your project by putting in certified payroll. Does the city have to verify or county have to verify anything where they think it's going to be extra time and that's why it's not getting done? Or is it just there the trend? It could be some of that because, yeah, you would additional work to a, somebody in your payroll that would have to go through and verify the payrolls. It's so interesting, like, how this is coming through. Okay. I just, there's clearly um, ways that this could be assisted where exploited Ex- exploitation of workers could not continue based on some of these until they figure out some other way to exploit people. And it's also interesting to think like the federal obviously has set a high standard, but locally you're not seeing it as much as what I'm hearing from you. That is correct. I don't even know that it's just that they don't want to do it or don't know to do it. I'm going to go back to, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't know this is going on at this point. So my main goal is like we touched on earlier, have a lot of these conversations, inform everybody what we see, what we've had, what developers are cheating, what OSHA violations are easy to track. We can show this company has a terrible record of safety mm-hmm. or things like that. You can just, prevention is much easier than enforcement. Winning, like we talked about in the court cases, is long and painful. And even at that case, if it's still very profitable, they're just going to continue to do it. So I don't think just by winning court cases is going to break this system. I think it's really prevention. It's getting everybody involved to stand up and say, not in my city and setting barriers in place to prevent that from happening. Okay. So let me ask you, how are you having these conversations and educating them? Because you alluded to this, like, what does that look like from your perspective when you're going to city or county officials and having this conversation? What's it like? So any way I can do it. I don't care if I meet them at a parade, if we happen to be at a groundbreaking for a building, anybody that I can get to listen, just having that conversation, but not doing it in a way. I don't want to come in and tell them that what they're doing is wrong and this is happening in their city. More of a trying to be curious, trying to have the conversation with them, tell a personal story about something we experienced, tell them about ways how these could be fixed, just general steps that. Uh, 
as any, whether it be a parent and official, a boss, nobody wants you to just come to their doorstep and complain about stuff. You got to bring solutions. So trying to bring some of these small steps that they could start to work into contracts that seem like a no brainer and start those small barriers in place. And then after you stack one barrier, you can stack another barrier and be like, look, this helped us on here. This is why we need this next one. As you just get that, understand the importance of these small steps that I see are big and very important to me might be an oversight in the grand scheme of an entire city budget. Hmm. If you were to dream big, because it sounds like it's also like you're giving them the benefit of the doubt that they may not even know this is happening or the solutions to it, because they probably don't. They're managing a whole city budget. If you could dream big and like imagine educating, okay, is there something in your head that's man, I wish I could just educate every city councilor, county official, when they got into office, they'd have to go through this. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out to see. <laughs> so I like where you're going with it. I wish every ele- elected official had to take a test when they first got in because we could give them all of this information in a packet. But I think a lot of it just starts with relationships. It's one thing if I'm just a crazy guy calling them up and telling them what my problems are and everything else. It's another thing if I can have conversations with them, examples, bring them solutions, and takes even small victories that we have gotten to to them so that it's not just a complaint or it's not just a need that I need from them, that it's a joint effort and it's about it's not about shame. It's not about I can't believe your city did this. It's just about here's ways that we can prevent it and make sure it never happens again. Mm, I like that philosophy that you're adopting, Matt. It feels very approachable. What and else I think that's it? key because everybody I was gonna say, and I think that's such a key part to it because if I went in and just blamed them or told them this was going on in their city and they don't believe me or they dismiss me or they get defensive, I've already lost what I'm trying to accomplish. So it's not about telling them how we need to do it. It's about showing them examples and offering solutions. Yeah, I like that. It's all about the solutions and listening. Is there any other ways that you think could help this crisis, I'll say, this exploitation? So I think we hit on the major ones. If I... And maybe I'm not dreaming big enough at this point, but I, it's a tough road when you, the amount of time and effort and battles that you go through just to see things not getting done. Or sometimes if something didn't get, if you didn't get the win that you were hoping for, or the penalty to a contractor that was cheating was smaller than what you had hoped for. Those are tough, tough to endure time and time again, that you just, you want to see change. You want to see something real. You want to see something big. But I think you've got to be realistic and take the small steps when you can get them, take the small victories when you get them and keep building those. Because like you said, it's a lot bigger than what I ever thought it was. It's a lot bigger than what I think most people anticipate or think that it is. And it's not going to change tonight. The more conversations, the more people we can influence, the bigger this army against it, the more that we can get people to stand up and say, not in my town. I think that's where our biggest victory is going to lie. Mm, I love that. How are you, I'm curious, how are you educating other people about what you do to create, it's almost like more soldiers on the ground with you doing this? Because you're in one town, I'm sure you don't speak everywhere in the nation, or maybe you do. What's that like, Matt? 
So I'm fortunate. Again, I said I was a business rep with the Carpenters Union. We cover six states. We have Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And through our one of our main pushes that we do is our tax fraud days of action, where we highlight this. We actually right around tax day every sure that we get out and do something big and we try to do something bigger every year about making sure we bring attention to this because the one thing every city official wants is more anything they want in their anything they want to do in their budget or any programs that they want to install they need money for a big piece that we talk about is you don't have to raise taxes to get more just collect taxes on the people that are already working or the jobs that are already going on there's a lot of people cheating in the scenario that would help so it's again trying to bring awareness to it uh, not just in one area but there's many people like myself that are reaching out and doing the same thing across these six states and across the whole states mm, beautiful is there anything that i have not touched on that you think is worth other people knowing about this cause I don't think so. I think the biggest thing is just changing the mindset of people that I think so many people think of this issue as a construction issue. This is not a construction issue. This happens in many different fields to begin with, but I know we focus today heavily on the construction side, but this is a human rights issue. These humans better than this. The fact that people profit off of another human in this way is just absolutely disgusting. And I think if we see this as a construction issue, we're missing the target that my main focus is to get people to see this as a human issue. It's really beautiful, Matt. Yeah, I'm just so proud to know you and know the work that you're doing and trying to lead the charge on this injustice and informing and educating people in such a kind and giving people the benefit of the doubt way, Matt. It's really beautiful. Thank you for doing Thank what you. you're doing. <laughs> thanks for well, coming thank on you today for inviting me on. i was just gonna thank you for inviting me on today and giving me the platform to share that message because again part of what i do is just to help teach more people and i appreciate utilizing this as a tool to help inform more people thank you matt